you got a worship folder when you came in this morning, there is a sermon note insert in there that has a lot of scripture written on it. It's broken into four different parts. There's the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. And then it has all of those scriptures written down. Now, we're not even going to get close to reading all of these verses. In fact, the scripture that is recorded on that insert, we're not going to look at it at all. What I want to encourage you to do is over the course of this next week, sit down and read all of those verses and read them in relation to the topic that they are attached to. Just sit down and go through them. There's a lot of great teaching in every one of those scriptures. Now, there are also some lines under each one of those sections. On the lines underneath each one of those sections, I encourage you to take some notes this morning and see if it will help bring all of this together. Ostensibly, what we're about to look at, everybody would say, I totally understand it. But as we break it down, it may make a little more sense to you. So what I want you to do this morning is open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament. And we're going to read some very familiar scripture. Mark chapter 12 starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, as I said, we hear those verses and we think, I've heard those all my life. If you've been around the church very long at all, you could actually say that. I've heard those verses all my life. You grew up in Sunday school and hearing those verses. Heard a number of sermons preached on those very verses. Gone to different Sunday school classes as an adult and you've heard those verses preached. And more than likely, you find yourself thinking that when Jesus says, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, all he really means is you're supposed to love him with all that you are and all that you have. And though that is true, there is still a lot more to it. We're going to be looking at the more to it this morning by breaking this verse down. Now, you can probably tell by having three whiteboards up here that this is going to be a little bit different than a normal Sunday morning. It's going to be different because of this. I'm going to do more teaching than preaching. There's going to be some preaching in it, but then there's going to be some teaching that goes along, or some teaching that goes along with the preaching. Let me make sure I get those right. So you're going to have to listen fast as we go through this, because as we break it down, we're going to bring it all back together. So let's start this way. I'm going to ask Tina to come up here and help illustrate a point. Over on this board, she's going to write the word heart. You can open up to any place in your worship folder that you'd like and do this same thing. Then I'm going to ask her to illustrate what a heart looks like. And she's going to go the way most of us would. She's going to draw out a heart that little girls started drawing when they were really young. As they get older, they put them on the margins of their, their notebooks in school and they write a boy's name in there. All kinds of different things happen. Boys do the same thing. We just need pocket knives and trees to do it. We draw the, the heart out and then write a couple names in there. That's how the majority of us would view the heart. On this board, she's going to write the word mind. And if you're trying this in your seat, do the same thing. Just write the word mind and then illustrate what a mind looks like. Believe it or not, she's a much better artist than I am. This is my favorite part right here. Do you notice who it looks like? <laughs> 
You know, 20 years ago, she fell in love with me for my hair. It's progressed now to her loving me for my mind. Okay, so now she's going to come up here on the stage, and on this third board, she's going to write the word soul, and then illustrate what a soul looks like. She can't do it. Most of us can't. Tina was in the office this past week as I was getting this message together, and I put a piece of paper in front of her, and I asked her to do this very thing. Draw out what a heart looks like, draw out what a mind looks like, and then draw out what a soul looks like. When she got to the soul, she said, I don't know how to do it. You probably don't either. In fact, with the guys that I was praying with this morning before first service, I asked them to describe these different things, and then I asked them to describe what a soul was. And Justin Picard said, I don't know that I've ever tried to describe it. The majority of us have never tried to describe it. We've never thought that much about it. We just see our soul as being this thing that lives on forever, and that's all that we ever need to think about it. But there's a great deal more to it. Because remember, Jesus says that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And we're going to come back to strength in just a little bit. So I want us to break these down and figure out what he meant when he spoke about each one of them. We're going to start with the mind. The Bible speaks about the mind, the mind that God has given you, the mind that he has given me, 165 times. From Genesis to Revelation, the concept of your mind comes up 165 times. Now that's quite a bit if you stop and think about it. 66 books, 165 times. God talks about the role of our mind, not necessarily in our walk with him, but in life. Your mind plays a big part. Now everybody understands that your mind is the place where you receive and keep information. Things like this. George Washington was the first president of the United States. That's information that is retained within your mind. United States of America landed on the moon in 1969. Unless you're a conspiracy theory person, you can retain information like that in your mind. Those kinds of thoughts have actually been said to help determine who we are. We use those thoughts. We use them to determine our course in life. We use them to determine our understanding of everything that happens around us. We use those thoughts as we make our way through every day. Now, I'll illustrate for you how that works. Beloit College in Wisconsin has a group of people that put a list together every year that deals with the thoughts or the habits of their incoming freshmen. And then they pass these things out to all of their professors that they might understand who it is that they're about to start teaching. So this is about 18-year-olds every year. I get this list. I think it gets emailed to me. I don't really know where it comes from, but I always enjoy reading it. A few years ago, I thought, well, yeah, I kind of fit in that category. And now as I read this list, I think, whew, 18-year-olds are really, really young. So listen to what they said in 2010. I pulled this one up because it just seemed more interesting to me than the 2011 list. Number one, in the minds of 18-year-olds one year ago, the Soviet Union has never existed, and therefore it is about as scary as the student union. Number two, they've only known two presidents. Number three, for most of their lives, major U.S. airlines have been bankrupt. Manuel Noriega has always been in jail in the U.S., They've grown up getting lost in big boxes. There has always been only one Germany. They have never heard anyone actually ring it up on a cash register. They are wireless, yet always connected. A stained blue dress is as famous to their generation as a third-rate burglary was to their parents. 
Thanks to pervasive headphones in the back seat, parents have always been able to speak freely in the front. A coffee has always taken longer to make than a milkshake. Smoking has never been permitted on U.S. airlines. Faux fur has always been a necessary element of style. The moral majority has never needed an organization. They've never had to distinguish between the St. Louis Cardinals baseball and football teams. DNA fingerprinting has always been admissible evidence in court. They grew up pushing their own miniature shopping carts in the supermarket. They grew up with and have outgrown faxing as a means of communication. I like this one. Google has always been a verb. Text messaging is their email. Millie Vanilli has never had anything to say. Mr. Rogers, not what? That is funny. <laughs> Mr. Rogers, not Walter Cronkite, has always been the most trusted man in America. Barcodes have always been on everything from library cards and snail mail to retail items. Number 24. Madden has always been a game, not a Super Bowl winning coach. Phantom of the Opera has always been on Broadway. Booger's Candy has always been a favorite for grossing out parents. There has never been a skyhook in the NBA. Carbon copies are oddities found in their grandparents' attics. Computerized player pianos have always been tinkling in the lobby. Non-denominational megachurches have always been the fastest-growing religious organizations in the U.S. They grew up in minivans. Reality shows have always been on television. They have no idea why we need to ask, can we all get along? They've always known that in the criminal justice system, the people have been represented by two separate yet equally important groups. Young women's fashions have never been concerned with where the waist is. <laughs> it's true. Okay, well, I'll move on. <clears throat> they have rarely mailed anything using a stamp. Brides have always worn white for a first, second, or third wedding. Being techno-savvy has always been inversely proportional to age. So, as in so New York, has always been a drawn-out adjective modifying a proper noun, which in turn modifies something else. Affluent, troubled teens in Southern California have always been the subjects of television series. They've always been able to watch wars and revolutions live on television. Ken Burns has always been producing very long documentaries on PBS. They're not aware that flock of seagulls hair has nothing to do with birds flying into it. Retin A has always made America look less wrinkled. Green tea has always been marketed for health purposes. Public school officials have always had the right to censor school newspapers. Small white holiday lights have always been in style. Most of them never had the chance to eat bad airline food. They've always been searching for Waldo. Number 50, the really rich have regularly expressed exuberance with outlandish birthday parties. Michael Moore has always been showing up uninvited. They never played the game of state license plates in the car. How many of you grew up playing that game? 18, 19-year-olds never played that game. They've always preferred going out in groups as opposed to dating. There have always been live organ donors. They have always had access to their own credit cards. They've never put their money in a savings and loan. Sarah Lee has always made underwear. Bad behind yeah, I don't know. Bad behavior has always been getting captured on amateur videos. Disneyland has always been in Europe and Asia. They never saw Bernard Shaw on CNN. Beach volleyball has always been a recognized sport. Acura, Lexus, and Infinity have always been luxury cars of choice. Television stations have never concluded the broadcast day with the national anthem. Low-jack transmitters have always been finding lost cars. Diane Sawyer has always been live in prime time. Dolphin-free canned tuna has always been on sale. Disposable contact lenses have always been available. Outing has always been a threat. Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss has always been the perfect graduation gift. They have always dissed what they don't like. The U.S. has always been studying global warming to confirm its existence. 
Richard M. Daly has always been the mayor of Chicago. They grew up with virtual pets to feed, water, and play games with, lest they die. Ringo Starr has always been clean and sober and number 75. Professional athletes have always competed in the Olympics. Thoughts that determine a mindset. Thoughts that determine how teachers are supposed to approach us. All of those things are captured in the mind. Spiritually, that same thing is true. We all catalog certain thoughts about God or about Scripture. We know in our minds that David killed Goliath. We understand that David was a man after God's own heart. In the New Testament, we understand that Jesus died because God loved us that much. We know that Paul was imprisoned a number of times. We know that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. All of those are ideas. A number of people have their spiritual life centered solely in their mind. They have an intellectual understanding of who God is, and that determines their relationship with Him. If I can think about it long enough, I'll figure out what I am supposed to do. An intellectual understanding of God is void of any feeling. An intellectual understanding of God is void of any passion. A solely intellectual understanding of God is not what God intended at all. Then over on this side, we have the heart. The heart is the place of emotions. It's the place of feeling. The heart is the place where we determine what we're going to do with all of these ideas. The heart is, for many people, the very thing that drives them. Yet for some people, when they get into the realm of the heart and they live solely within the heart, they make all kinds of impetuous, spur-of-the-moment decisions because this is how I feel. We say to people all the time, I love you with my whole heart, or I'm driven by my heart in our relationship. And that means that if today I feel like loving you, I will, but tomorrow if I don't feel like loving you, I won't. And when we allow a love relationship to be centered only in this realm, we're going to make all kinds of snap decisions, many of which we will regret at some point. We're just going to do whatever feels good today. If it seems like fun, I'll do it. If it doesn't seem like fun, I don't want any part of it. Folks who are driven solely by the heart make all kinds of mistakes. It is always disconcerting to me when in the midst of decision-making processes, somebody will say, well, what does your heart say? What does your gut say? Well, you need to ask a lot more questions than that. At some point, you have to bring common sense in. You have to bring all of your history into it. You have to bring your mind into the process. And the Bible talks all the time about our heart relationship. In fact, 725 times from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible will talk about our heart and the role that it plays in our relationship with God. But there are a number of places where God would say that he has to search out not only the heart, but also the mind and bring them together. It's true in all kinds of relationships. Let me show you just five verses of Scripture where this is true. We're going to go to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 26, verse 2. This is a psalm of David. David says, Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. David, in saying to the Lord, I want you to search me out. I want you to figure out what my motives are. I want you to go everywhere within my life and help me figure certain things out. David breaks it down and he says, I want you to search my heart and my mind. Search both of those places that I might really find the understanding that I'm looking for. Still in the book of Psalms, we're going to go through this pretty fast. Chapter 64, verse 6. The psalmist says, They plot injustice and say, We have devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and the heart of man are cunning. When the heart and the mind come together, when the intellectual understanding comes together with the emotional driving force, 
good things can happen. So can bad things. When those two things are connected, we're somewhat limitless. When we're using our mind and we're using our heart, the world is out there for us. And in this particular situation, it isn't going to be good. Still in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 20. Jeremiah says, But, O Lord Almighty, you who judge righteously and test the heart and mind. Once again, Jeremiah is saying God is concerned about both places, and he gets into both of those areas that he might really figure out what's going on. Still in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 6. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Do you see the way the two go hand in hand? God intended it to be that way. We're not to be driven in our walk with him solely by our mind, nor are we to be driven solely by our hearts. And when those things are functioning the way they're supposed to and they come together with other people, truly amazing things happen. It did in the early church. Acts chapter 4. Everybody was together trying to do what God wanted them to do. And this is how the Bible records it. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had because they were together in heart and mind. That's the way God intended it to be. By the way, in the middle of conflicts between people or when somebody is upset with another person and there's all kinds of decisions that are flying around in those relationships... One of the first questions that I ask, whether I ask it out loud or whether I'm trying to seek it out on my own, is, is this a heart decision or is this a mind decision? Where is this coming from? And if we can't figure out if the heart and the mind are both connected, then we try to connect them before any decisions are made. And there's just good medicine in that. So we have our heart. We have our mind. We understand what happens in both of those places. And Jesus said, we're to love the Lord our God with everything there is in our heart and everything that there is in our mind. But he takes it a step further into the realm of our soul. And it's this soul realm that is so hard for people to understand. John Eldridge actually describes the heart this way. This is a fantastic understanding of it. Eldridge says that the heart lives in a bloody and magnificent reality between living and dying, loving and hating. Now, that's a great description of the heart. But listen to how a popular philosopher named Dallas Willard, and he's popular today, so he's not some guy who died 100 years ago. This is Dallas Willard. He lives today. He says, at any given moment, your soul is running your life, not your thoughts, not your feelings, not your intellect, but your soul. Your soul is that dimension, Willard says, that takes all the other aspects of yourself and brings them together. He goes on to say that your soul lives almost constantly beyond awareness. Your soul lives beyond awareness, yet it is the very thing that is driving your life. For a Christian, that is particularly true because it's your soul where Jesus lives. That's where he has taken up residence. We say all the time, I've accepted Jesus into my heart. We would be a whole lot better off to say that I have accepted him into my soul. Because your soul is eternal, lives on forever and ever and ever. Yet it is still very difficult for a lot of people to understand. 
So let me help you with that process. And we're going to use a couple of people to help describe this. Your soul is the very essence of who you are. You have all kinds of tools and instruments that you use to express your soul. We'll pick on my good friend Ray. Ray is an interesting study in people. When he graduated from high school, Ray went to college on a football scholarship. Now, that's not hard to understand at all. You look at Ray and you think, Ray went to school on a football scholarship. The guy's a giant, for heaven's sakes. So nobody has to stretch to see that that's why he went to college and how he went to college and that people gave him a scholarship to go to college. But do you know what he was studying when he went to school? Music. He was a music major with a football scholarship. That is an anomaly. Ray, is it safe to say that you were the only music major in the football program? Oh, boy. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. So Ray has two different expressions of his personality. He's an athlete. He's a football player. Football, the gridiron, that's one expression of who he is. Music is another expression of who he is. The essence of Ray, his soul, his character, his personality comes out in those two forms. There's many others, but we're just picking on those two forms. If Ray could no longer play football, and he might tell you that as he's gotten older, it's a lot harder to play football. If Ray could no longer play football, his soul doesn't cease to exist. He doesn't quit being Ray. He just can't play football anymore. If Ray gets to a place where he could no longer sing, that doesn't mean that Ray stops being. He continues on. He just no longer has that tool to express his character, to express his personality, the essence of who he is. Let's pick on somebody else. Beth Burns plays piano a lot on Sunday mornings. She's a director of our worship ministries here, does many things in the church. She plays this very piano, which I found out a few weeks ago. This is kind of interesting. This is the very piano that she took lessons on as a kid. It is the only piano she has ever played in church. It's been around a long time. Beth has been around. A, well, I'm not going to say that. <clears throat> so let's say that I was to grab an axe walk over here to the piano and just splinter that piano into a million pieces, Beth would not cease to exist, only the instrument that she has always used. That is true for every one of us. When your body dies, your soul lives on. Your body is simply the instrument that you use to express your character, your nature, the very essence of who you are, your personality. That's what your body is. When your body dies, your soul lives forever. That's one of the reasons that we will be able to recognize people in heaven. We will receive new bodies at the resurrection, but your soul, your personality, your character will continue on exactly the way it is. All of that will still be there. And that's found in your soul. It's found in the essence of who you are. It's found within your character. Found within your being. So Jesus says... We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. What we have to understand is that it is our soul that connects these other things. It is the place where it all comes together. According to Willard, your soul is governing your life at every moment. It's running everything. So if you're a Christian and you have an intellectual understanding of God and you have a heart desire for God, your soul drives those things, brings it all together. So we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. 
make sure that our entire being belongs to Him. And when it does, we get to a place where we can say, just like we sang a few minutes ago, it is well with my soul. Big question, though, is how do we pull that off? How do we get to that place? Well, I want to give you four ways to evaluate that. So you can ask yourself very pointedly, is it well with my soul? The first step in a relationship with Christ is surrender. That's the very first step. In that realm, that's where spiritual warfare happens in some of the most pointed of ways. As I'm surrendering my thoughts, my will, my actions to the things of God. In fact, sometimes in this realm of surrender, there's a lot of bitterness attached there because we feel like God is taking things away from us. We feel like God is changing us and our mind doesn't necessarily want to change to the things that God wants it to change to. So we struggle back and forth. It's very visible. It's very real. It's a big, big struggle. In that realm of surrender, a lot of people just get stuck right there and they never make it any further. No matter how hard they try, they stay stuck right there at that point of surrender. But when they're able to blow on through that and they're able to surrender their things to God, their life to God, their thoughts, their actions, their feelings, and so on, all of those things get surrendered to the will of the Lord. They could actually put themselves in a place just like the psalmist. Back in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The person that gets through that point of surrender can say, like the psalmist, my delight is in my God. I care about what he cares about. I'm concerned about the things he's concerned about, and I am living for him. Get through surrender, you find yourself in the realm of abandonment. Now, I'm not talking about abandonment issues. I'm talking about a place where you can say, I have totally abandoned my will for God's. It's what he wants that matters to me. It's what he thinks that I want to think about. God drives my actions. Abandonment is a wonderful place for people to live. At that moment, right there, people are saying, God, I belong to you. Now, people bounce back and forth between abandonment and surrender all the time. They bounce from the realm of abandonment back into surrender. They deal with an issue, and then they come back into the realm of abandonment. Then they go back into the realm of surrender, and then they come back into the realm of abandonment. And it happens for people all the time, for years and years and years, until finally they move through that realm of abandonment into what's been referred to as contentment. The Apostle Paul got there. He wrote about it in the book of Philippians. He said it this way, I've learned to be content no matter what, whether well-fed or hungry whether I'm living in plenty or with nothing, I have learned to be content. In that realm, people understand what one author has said sounds like this. I understand that no irredeemable harm can come to those who live in God's hand. No irredeemable harm can come to those who live in God's hand. Which means this, we're still going to have struggles. But God is bigger than those struggles. We're still going to have things that we have to overcome, but God is with us in overcoming them. In contentment, we're able to say, my God is bigger than everything. And when we really have arrived there, 
It's just a short jump into the fourth step, which is called participation. Isaiah understood it. God needed somebody to do something. Isaiah stepped forward and said, Here am I, Lord, send me. The realm of participation, we want our life to matter. The realm of participation, we want to be used by the Lord. We want to understand a greater purpose. In the realm of participation, we want God to take us places that we've never been before. Deep, deep into His will and His plan and His purposes. When we get there, we begin to understand what it means to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind, and all of our strength. The Gospel of Mark records Jesus saying those four things. Matthew does not. Matthew says that the greatest commandment is only to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. Mark recorded strength. Strength is the outward actions of your faith. It's how you're demonstrating it to everybody else. Strength is the action part of your relationship with God. So when we get through loving God with all of our mind and we get Him into our heart and we understand that it's really a soul issue, then our strength, our actions, begin to demonstrate that relationship. It becomes visible. We're able to tell the Lord through participation, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I will be who you want me to be. And Lord, it'll all be good because you are who you are. That is a soul decision, one that has to be made in that realm. If we only love God with our minds, we will never understand it. If we only love God with our hearts, there will be all kinds of emotional things that happen, but we will not be loving God at the soul level. And if we are not loving God at the soul level, we will never be able to honestly say, these words. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. I want to ask you to stand with us. And I want to ask you to ask God to do something. Would you ask him to search your heart, search your mind? That's what David did. Search your heart and search your mind. And then ask him to search your soul, that he might help you really arrive at the conclusion to this question. Is it well with your soul? Have you reached that place of participation? Made your way through surrender and abandonment and contentment to the place of participation? Or you're living the way God wants you to live. Or you are living right in the middle of His will. It's not an easy question. We have people that are available to help you with it. If you already know the answer to it, and that answer is no. No, it is not well with my soul. I know that if my soul were to live on, it is not in heaven. You want to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ, that that might be changed. You can do that. Maybe you know that there are things that you've just been holding on to, refusing to let God have, and it is not well with your soul because of that. You can talk to somebody about that. Pray with them about it. Maybe that's true in somebody else's life. You look at their life and you know it is not well with their soul because Jesus is nowhere near their soul and you're concerned about them. And you want to pray with somebody about the life, the soul, the eternity 
of somebody else. You can do that. No matter what the situation is, all you have to do is go over to this door. Brian Stewart is there. He will pair you up with somebody that will talk with you and pray with you and stay connected with you until you get to a place where you can say, it is well with my soul. So what we're going to ask you to do is bow your head, close your eyes, think through all of those different things. Ask God to do the same thing for you. This is prayer between you and the Lord. Ray and the worship team are going to start singing. And as you come to the conclusion that it is well with your soul, sing with us.